Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. One of the earliest accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and resurrection, was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke, but Luke continued the story in a second volume called the Book of Acts, and it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait, and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a roadmap for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, He made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. So welcome to our series of Seize the 167, looking at how we can follow Jesus every hour of the week. And doesn't the Bible Project do an awesome job of just kind of summarizing and capturing um, those couple of chapters there. And they bring us right up to where we're at today with Peter's message, following Pentecost, following um, the Spirit coming upon each of them. And as we continue to journey through Acts, we're doing so so that we can just look at how best we can follow our example and how we can follow Jesus in every hour of our week. And the reason we say seize the one six seven is because it's assumed that we're gathering together one hour a week here to kind of ground us, to kind of spur us on, encourage us, uh, hold us accountable with one another. And then we go out and seize the other 167 hours available to us in the week. So tonight, I'm going to dig right into scripture right off the bat. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with me, feel free to flip over to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be picking up where we left off, verse 14. 
Uh, it will also be on the screen behind you. Um, I'm using the NLT translation for this one. Uh, I like, um, I just like how easy it is to read. It's not quite as paraphrased as the message translation. So feel free to read along in your own translation uh, to look for some differences or not. But uh, another thing I loved that Steve had mentioned, the pastor last week at Gateway, he said, the reason we invite you to read along in your Bibles is to hold me accountable and make sure that what I'm saying is the same thing you're reading on the page. And I thought that's, that's a great reminder and that's a good challenge for us as we follow along. But Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. That's where we left off last week. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And he goes into what the prophet wrote. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So first of all, I'm going to stop there for a moment. Joel was a prophet, and the prophets here are using larger-than-life language and imagery to drive home their point, to confront the injustice and the coldness of God's people's hearts and kind of calling them out on, hey, God loves the people that you're oppressing right now, the, the widows, the poor, the slaves. And the term, the day of the Lord, before that great and glorious day of the Lord, it's not the whole Tim LaHaye Left Behind series where everyone's gone and you're like, whoa, where'd everyone go? It's more of a when God shows up. The day of the Lord is when God shows up. And it can happen at any moment. It can, it can be right around the corner. And when that happens, they're using this larger-than-life language and imagery to, to tap into how terrifying it may be. These are the religious people who have been following things and have a stability and have this certainty about them. And it's going to be terrifying in the sense that there's going to be this uncertainty and instability when God shows up. So he goes on in verse 22 to say, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. He's saying God gave you this person to show you how to live, to show you how to love, to show you how to honor God, to show you how to, to be free, and you murdered him. You killed him. You put him on a cross. You handed him over, and not even just to your leaders, but to the Roman leaders, to be executed and shamed. So Peter continues on now, quoting from the Psalms, and he says, King, 
King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he's right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. I love this point. It's a lot of words for pretty much saying, guys, David's dead. That's what he's saying right there. He's like, this is what David was talking about, but now he's dead. We've got his tomb. We can confirm this. So he wasn't talking about himself. He says, but he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses to this. When he says that we're witnesses to this, he's talking about himself. There's the 11 other disciples behind him, and then there's the group of 120 who we're all meeting in the upper room. He's saying, we've all witnessed this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven. Yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Whew, that was a lot of Bible right there. I usually don't go through large chunks like that, but if we're going to be journeying through Acts, then we're going to be journeying through Acts, and we're going to be going through a lot of Bible. But I hope you're still tracking with me up to speed. But what I want to do, because we covered so much, is I want to simply draw out three observations that just stood out to me as I continued to, to study this passage and pour over this. And the first one is actually quite simple. It's where Peter stands up and says, fellow Jews. And he goes on to say, people of Israel or fellow Israelites, dear brothers. Why does he say this? He says it because context matters. You see, he's contextualizing his message. He's starting off by saying, I'm one of you, like fellow Jews, he, here I am. He knows that they're devout religious people who had been journeying through the scriptures. And because he knew that about them, because they're at this religious festival, he also knows he's able to go back to scripture and to the prophets and quote from there, and they would understand. They would be tracking, saying like, yeah, we're looking for these signs and wonders, showing us the day of the Lord and looking for the last days. Now, one thing about the last days as well is that we're still in the last days. Jesus inaugurated the last days. So when it talks about the last days, it's not this future last days too. It's like the last days that we're in. We're just 2,000 years ahead in the last days. But what's more is that, as I mentioned, Peter's not alone in preaching. He's not standing there by himself. He's standing there on behalf of the other 11 and the other 120 behind him. And again, I think I mentioned this last week or maybe two weeks ago, 
The reason there's the 12 disciples is because they're representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But this is pretty bold because the 12 disciples are standing up in front of all these religious Jewish people and Israelites saying, hey, we're your representatives. And they're thinking, not so sure. We just murdered the guy who tried to lead your group. This was bold. So Peter's saying, fellow Israelites, I'm one of you. This is Israel calling to Israel. Listen to what I have to say. So we have to understand that this message is born in Israel and it's shaped for Israel. And because Peter was one of them, he actually had the credibility to call them out on their injustice. He was able to call them out on the fact that, hey, you know what, guys? Our nation, our nationalism, our, our identity, it's pretty corrupt. There's things going on that God's not happy with. And in this very first Christian sermon, if you want to call it that, that was ever preached, we have to recognize that it was, again, shaped and contextualized for who they're speaking to. And you'll see elsewhere in the New Testament when they're speaking to people who aren't from Israelites, who are Gentiles, who are, who are others, they, they won't quote the Old Testament because there's no point. They wouldn't understand it. But here, they're actually rooting it and grounding it in the scriptures that Israel would know. And why is this important? I think it's important because we've got it wrong many, many times throughout history. There's two stories that, that uh, I was shared with recently. One was my friend Kevin Makins, who's a pastor downtown Hamilton. I spoke about him last week. He talked about a time he was at Art Crawl down in Hamilton on James Street North. That's the area where, where he, he lives, he serves, he ministers. And there were these two other guys with big signs that said, Jesus is alive, repent now. And he thought, okay, I'm going to go over and talk to these guys. And he went over and said, hey, love the zeal. So does this actually ever work for you? And they said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, has, has anyone actually repented and saved and you've baptized them? And, and Well, no. He's like, okay, well, what, why do you think it would work at Art Crawl? And they said, what's Art Crawl? He's like, wait, you're standing here with your signs in the middle of this community and the streets are packed and you don't even know what you're doing here? And they said, well, God's just told us that this is what we need to do. And he said, okay, but I agree to disagree. But uh, he, he just kind of challenged them on it. And I, I think sometimes we think we know what other people want to hear. And we kind of address it from our point of view. But let's be honest. People who don't know Jesus don't want to see the big sign saying you're going to hell and the flames going up. The other story that I just actually saw last night from my friend Jason Ballard out in Vancouver. He's planting a church called The Way Vancouver. And he's also involved in Alpha. He posted on his Instagram stories last night an example of they just were running an Alpha course down in Washington, and they put out a sign that just said, everyone is welcome. And this girl who had been homeless was walking by the street, walking by the church and saw the sign and thought, I'm going to see if everyone actually is welcome. Went in and was like, man, I am welcome. 
I am loved. I could ask questions, and I could explore, and I could get to know who this Jesus was. And this was her story from six years ago, because today she's actually running Alpha courses. She's actually got herself a job and a home, and she's still going to the streets to do ministry because she understands the people who are living on the streets. And I just look at these two different approaches, and this one where we kind of come with our our preconceived ideas and our signs, and we say, this is how it is. But then you look at the other side that just says, you're loved, you're welcomed, you're accepted here. And to which one that God uses. So I think we have it wrong many, many times on how sometimes we try to contextualize our message, or we think people should just read the word and know nothing else. And is that how you came to know God? It might be, and if that is, awesome. But I bet there's more of a relationship there than not. So we have to think about how we're contextualizing the good news of Jesus in Binbrook. And that's where it hits home for me is how are we contextualizing the gospel and embodying the gospel here in Binbrook so that people who are hopeless can find hope? Because as we've said many, many times before, it's just being masked right now behind a facade of nice cars and nice homes and having all the programs and the, the sports equipment and add whatever to the list, technology. But you know what? If we are actually living a different kingdom, if we're part of bringing heaven and earth together, then how is that changing our lives? How is that transforming how we live? How are we sharing that hope with others? Because at the end of the day, our culture and society has a pretty good BS radar. Sing, bing, 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 and they're like, that's some good bait and switch right there. You're telling us one thing, you're pulling another. I think we just have to be authentic. We have to be real and genuine and not get so fixated on what's wrong with culture but focus on what's good and what's right in culture and how we can celebrate that, but then how we can also use that to then share the hope that we have in Jesus. What does it look like to share the good news of Jesus in this place at this time? And if you think you've got it bad and you're like, oh man, you don't know my situation though. I am gonna be grilled if I even like acknowledge I'm a Christian. Well, let's go back to my buddy Peter here in Acts chapter 2, because if you think you've got it bad, again, he's preaching to the Israelites who just had a hand in murdering Jesus. So he's standing up there, and I love how my Bible puts it. I don't know if yours says it, but it just says there's a heading that's added in later. It's not from the original text, but it just says, Peter preaches to the crowd. That sounds very nice and harmless, like, oh, okay, Peach. He has a nice crowd in front of him. They're listening. Well, he's preaching to the people who just had a hand in killing Jesus. Like, this isn't a crowd that's necessarily wanting to hear what he has to say. They're listening because of this phenomenon that happened in front of them, this, these languages that have been spoken. But these people were, would be the ones that would have been cheering on Jesus' execution. And Peter's message and the anchoring message of the early church is that Jesus is alive. 
This is the message that they keep coming back to again and again and again. The three simple words, Jesus is alive. And you see, at this time, the greatest human systems were showing its greatest corruption. Rome was corrupted to the core. They had, they had the power. They, they had the boot on the neck. They were the oppressors, oppressing the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor. The temple also had a hollow heart, also was rotten to the core. They too wanted the control. They wanted the power. And they wanted to make sure they had that power So they executed an innocent man in order to ensure this, saying, this guy's flipping our kingdom upside down. We can't have this. We need to make sure this guy is killed. Evil came to its climax in this one great act of violence against an innocent man. But this was part of God's rescue operation. And this is the best part of it. Because how do you take away the power from Rome? How do you take away the power from the temple and all who are wanting to control and oppress the marginalized? You take it away by overcoming their greatest weapon, by overcoming violence. That's all they had. They had their execution. That's what they would hold over everyone. Death was the ultimate end, but death could not hold him. See, Jesus is alive. It's such a simple message, but it puts the crosshairs on the disciples because it's saying, yeah, you know the guy that you thought you got rid of because you were trying to control things? Jesus is alive. I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He's a biblical scholar, and he first asks the question, if the prophecies of Joel are coming true and the Spirit is available for all God's people, Why is the spirit not being poured out on the chief priests, on the official religious leaders and teachers? Then he goes on to say, the answer is politically uncomfortable in the first century as anywhere else is that the spirit seems to be indicating that the work of new creation is beginning here in this upper room where Jesus' friends and family have gathered, not in the temple, not in the rabbinic schools, not in the back rooms where the revolutionaries plot violence, but here where those who had been with Jesus and had seen him alive again after his resurrection find themselves overwhelmed with the fresh wind of the Spirit and unable to stop speaking about what they have seen and heard. Wow. I would not want to be Peter at this moment. This puts the followers of Jesus on a collision course with power and authority because We've got a new king. Peter's standing there in front of thousands upon thousands of people who have gathered for a religious festival. Talk about any of our extremist groups that we can think of and standing up in front of them saying, hey, I used to be part of you, but now you've tried your best, you've lost you, you used all that you could. You lost. You have no more power. And instead, God is pouring out his power upon us. But it's not by means of violence. It's in order to proclaim that Jesus is alive and that he loves you and that he, he forgives you and that there's hope. 
and that there's no violence in the world that can actually overcome love. And we are called to be his witnesses to that. I think that's the most exciting part, that we're still called to be his witnesses to that fact that Jesus is alive. It's not that Jesus was alive. It's that Jesus is alive. So the question naturally comes up then, where is Jesus alive and active in your life today? Is he? Do you recognize it? I'm going to throw Trevor a bit of a curveball because I'm jumping to another quote, but John Mark Comer, I was reading his book while I was away this past week on a spiritual prayer retreat, and it's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and he talks about the problem of losing touch with God, losing sight with God, and he says this, in the chronic problem of human beings felt experience of distance from God, God isn't usually the culprit. God is omnipresent. There is no place God is not, and no time he isn't present either. Our awareness of God is the problem. Boom, like mic drop, like done, like that's amazing. It's, it's not that God comes and goes and we're like, oh man, like God's so distant from me today. And No, God is still there, but are you aware to his presence? Are you aware that he's alive and living and active and Rob Reamer from the Soul Care Conference we went to last fall, he, he kind of said, where are your life experiences and Jesus' presence intersecting? Because it's right there at that intersection that you'll actually see the power of God at work. It's right there sometimes. It might be a coffee over a friend, with a friend. And you're having coffee and, and you're just like, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what they need. And you just sense the Holy Spirit telling you something. That's where you see God living and active. Or you're praying for healing, and, and you see healing take place. And I know I used to be a skeptic about that until I had my own healing story. And I love, again, Steve Kerr's approach where he says, why not pray for healing? I'd rather pray for it and see if God answers than not pray at all. Where is Jesus present in your life today? Because Jesus is alive. We're to be his witnesses of his saving grace, of his rescuing power, of his transforming touch in our lives. And the good news is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, which Peter links to now Jesus, everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will receive the Holy Spirit. Because you see, everyone gets to play. And this, this is what I love about Acts, is the doors are being kicked down, and it's just like everyone gets to play. You get the Spirit, and you get the Spirit, and you get the Spirit. It's Oprah, like, handing out the Holy Spirit. So let me go back to verse 17 before I get too far on that tangent. <laughs> verse 17, where he quotes the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So prophecy seems like a scary word. It kind of seems like we have this idea sometimes of a fortune teller maybe. Oh, they, they can predict the future. Pretty much Prophets were simply people who spoke the truth. 
They spoke it with a sense of urgency, often as if God himself were speaking it. And he's saying, they were pretty much saying, if you don't do something, things are going to get bad. Sometimes it was a message of comfort. Oftentimes it was pretty challenging and convicting messages. But the message was always urgent. If you don't change, things are going to get really bad. We have to do something now. One modern-day prophet that comes to mind would be someone like Greta Thunberg, in a bit of a secular sense maybe, and, and that she's saying, we need to do something about climate change because things are going to get bad. There's a modern-day prophet. But the important point in all of this is that it's not going to be the religious elite, the religious scholars who are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but the sons and the daughters and the slaves. In other words, God's going to speak through the most unexpected people. So you better watch out. There's so much more I could say on that, but I I need to stay on track. God's just going to blow our minds with who he chooses to use. Whenever I think about that, I actually kind of turn it around on myself. Like, even me? Like, you can use me? Because we know ourselves the worst. We're our own worst enemies, our own worst critics. It's so easy to give grace to others and be like, oh, you're a mom of two? Take it easy. Put your feet up. Watch Netflix. But then we come home, and Amanda and I are like, why are we so dead tired? And and, uh, it's easy to extend grace to others. But God wants to use even you. The Holy Spirit will be given out to those who put their trust in the Lord. It sounds obvious if you've been raised in the church, if you've been around the church for any length of time, but it's not as obvious as we may think, and it wasn't obvious back then. And next week, we're going to look at more of the the new response. But a great Canadian author, Sarah Bessie, she wrote in one of her recent books called Out of Sorts, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement of Churches, used to say, everyone gets to play. He meant that everyone gets to minister, everyone gets to hear from God, everyone has a part to play in this church and in this world. Everyone gets to speak life and healing, to pray and to serve and to lead and to follow. When it comes to the kingdom of God, everyone gets to play. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But like I said, the Holy Spirit is not a one-stop shop. It's not just this one-time event. It's a continual filling over and over again. We need to continually be filled with the Spirit. And I believe that this is why gathering together as the church is so important. Not that you can't be filled with the Spirit alone, but I believe that there's, there's this communal aspect, which is so beautiful, where we can come and encourage one another, hold each other accountable, and pray for one another, and together be filled with the Spirit to go out and transform our community and our world. But so often... We've neglected the Holy Spirit. In fact, Francis Chance, another author who wrote the book Forgotten God, the subtitle is Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And sadly, I don't think it's just the Holy Spirit that we've neglected. We've also forgotten God, or at least we've become very distracted. Like that quote from John Mark Comer, it's not that God's no longer present, that we've lost our awareness. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but are we even aware of it? 
And it might seem like a weird question to ask, especially if the Holy Spirit's not someone that you've given much thought to or attention to, or if you're still on your journey figuring out who Jesus is. But one of the ways the Spirit manifests itself in me, which several of you have now witnessed now, if not all of you, is through my emotions. When the Holy Spirit comes on me, I just start crying and weeping. And after I was a blubbling mess up here one time, Rona was kind enough to bring in boxes of Kleenex the next week for me because I couldn't pull it together. So tonight I even came prepared. But this past week I, I had mentioned that I was on the spiritual prayer retreat. And it's something I wish I could do more often and I want to try and set aside time to do. But it's a practice I've tried to cultivate a bit in my ministry. I haven't had one for three years. But uh, I've asked Amanda, I'm like, will you give me two nights? Because I need to know that there's a full day in between where I don't have to come back and be on with the kids or anything. I just need that full day. So she's gracious enough to give me the time away. And I went up to Stratford. And, and Wednesday morning came. And I'm like, yes, day to sleep in and get rested so I can be present to the Lord. And I woke up at 5 a.m. And I'm sitting there thinking, why am I awake at 5 a.m.? And I tossed and turned, and I couldn't get back to sleep, so I went and made coffee. And I sat down on the couch, and I began listening to the new Hillsong worship album. And I just began weeping, like uncontrolled, ugly cry. And I'm like, what is going on? And I realized that it had been so long since I just simply sat in the presence of God and was aware of him. I've been telling a few people as we were setting up earlier tonight that one of my feelings this week, I was so agitated because we're so connected, like watch and phones and iPads and the book I was reading was on my iPad. So there's just constant connections and to-do lists and emails and and it was so hard to unplug and simply be with God. But that morning, as I just listened to worship and I just was overcome by the Spirit, I realized, this is my job. This is what I get to do. This is what I'm supposed to be leading you towards, the, the living water. And if I'm not doing this, how much harder is it for you to? We're being called to play a part in God's kingdom of bringing heaven to earth. We're being called to contextualize his message, to, to go out into our communities and announce that Jesus is alive. That includes me. That includes you. Whatever lies come up in your head, well, I'm not blank enough or I'm not whatever, don't listen to them. They're exactly that. They're lies. God is calling you to play a part in his kingdom. Everyone gets to play. The Holy Spirit filled these regular, ordinary disciples, and they were just getting started in this brand new revolution. Everything had now changed. Jesus is alive. Jesus is king. The Holy Spirit of the living God breathed on their witness, and he's still breathing on our witness, and he's filling us with his spirit, and he's empowering us to go out from here into all the world 
to announce that Jesus is alive. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and put your trust in Jesus. So two quick questions are just, are you a home for the Holy Spirit? Where the Spirit can find its home and can rest? And have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? And if so, you get to play. Everyone gets to play. I'm going to do something that I don't do very often, and I've asked Kyle if he'd help me with this. I'm going to play a song called The Upper Room, and it's from the Hillsong album that I was listening to. And as we just reflect on the words and spend some time in prayer, Kyle and I are also going to stand each at a corner at the back, and if you need prayer, I'm just going to invite you to come to the back and just meet with Kyle or myself, and we'd be happy to pray with you. If it's for a specific situation, if it's for just simply figuring out this whole Jesus stuff, or it's even to be filled with the Spirit, let us pray with you. Let us pray for you. Let me just pray now, and then we'll put on the song, Upper Room. God, thank you for the promised gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the people that I get to journey with as we're learning to put our trust in you and what that looks like. Empower us and fill us with your Spirit again and again. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit isn't just something that remains foreign to us or seems scary, but God, show us that it's in fact someone who has been walking with us this whole time. God, for those sitting here tonight longing and wanting and needing to be filled with the Spirit or refilled with your Spirit, I pray that they wouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed, but that they would know that they're loved and accepted, and that they would come to the back and just simply ask for prayer so that we can pray together as a community as we seek to follow you. We ask, God, that you would graciously pour out your Holy Spirit upon all of us as we call upon your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.